In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, let me know myself and not be. Just why you're not Let me do everything for the sake of thee. Let me humble myself and exalt. Let me think nothing except thee. Let me die to myself and live in thee. Accept whatever happens is from thee. Banish myself and follow thee. And desire to follow thee. Die for myself and take refuge in thee. I deserve offended by thee. Let me fear for myself. Let me fear thee. Let me be among those who are chosen by thee. Let me distrust myself and put my trust in thee. Let me be willing to obey for the sake of thee. Let me cling to nothing, save only to thee. And let me be poor because of thee. Look upon me that I may love thee. Call me that I may see thee and forever enjoy thee. Amen. In the name of the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have to stay here. Well, if you can live this prayer, you're free to go. There's nothing I can tell you. Because that's the heart of the matter right here. Traditionally, in the period of Lent, the topics of judgment, hell, purgatory, and heaven are taught. For, for one purpose only. And that purpose is to have all of us focus on what is important. I want you to keep that in mind. Yes, the subject is it's heavy. It's heavy. Tonight's subject is going to perhaps um, get you to question some things about yourself. Next week's subject certainly is going to be a challenging one when we talk about health. But I want you to keep in mind that we're not doing this for the purpose of scaring ourselves. This is not a horror movie. We're doing it so we can That's the key. And so with that in mind, let's begin tonight with the first of these topics, which is judgments. We're going to first understand what judgment is. What do we mean by judgment? Then we're going to talk about the types of judgment that are mentioned in scripture. And then we'll talk about God's judgment and his mercy. We are then going to spend a lot of time on that topic number four. I'm going to breeze through one through three pretty quickly because I really want to focus on four and five. Because at the end of the day, what I would like you to retain out of this whole thing is how to prepare for a personal judgment. Because that's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. We're good? Okay. And like uh, Hanan said, there are going to be quite a few questions that may come to your mind. I'd like you to uh, grab them and then uh, ask them towards the end. Um, I'm sure that this is going to sort of generate a lot of... Uh, Conversation. First thing I want to start with are two words, two very confused words, objective, subjective. I'm going to define them for you in a very simple way, because those two words don't mean what you think they mean. 
Objective and subjective are actually grammatical words. So, Joe ate an apple. Joe is grammatically subject. subject. Apple is that's it. So, subjective means the way the subject lives an experience. Objective means the way the object lives the experience. So, objective is outside of you, subjective is inside of you. We live in the world today where people want to deny the objective and then worship the subjective. The truth is, we need both. In the case of judgment, there is an objective judgment, which is a judgment that we have no control over. It is completely outside of us, and we call it, therefore, objective judgment, which is divine judgment that is given by God, over which we have no control, and it has four aspects. God's knowledge of the moral worth of our actions. Key on this word, moral morality in our life of faith there are two things that we need we need theology which is the knowledge of the truth of god and then we need morality which is the knowledge of how to live well we need these two things together but at the end of the day god is going to look at us and see if we're theologians he's going to look at how we practice the moral aspect the second is his decree determining the just consequences of our actions. And the decree is going to be heaven or hell. The third is divine verdict. The decree is basically saying the truth. These moral actions deserve heaven or hell. Then there is an active action on his part, which is the judgment. He consigns people to hell or heaven. And then that's the execution of the sentence by way of reward and punishment. So out of this, the first takeaway for all of us is this. No one here present can send himself or herself to hell no more so that they can send themselves to hell. When you hear people say, oh, it's our action that condemns, God doesn't condemn anyone. What they're referring to is the subjective side of the judgment, but they are forgetting the objective side. At the end of the day, Jesus himself says, do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul. And that is Christ. And that's what we should fear. By destruction of the soul, he meant consigning someone to hell. The first thing I want you to keep in mind, after we die, immediately after we die, we're going to stand before Christ as judge. Not as merciful savior, as judge. And he will issue that decree hell or heaven, and it's final, and there's nothing we can do about it. If you understand what I'm saying, you begin to understand why in Scripture, in the Book of Wisdom, 
enemy song. There's this thing repeated often. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because if you understand that Christ isn't just the lovey-dovey hippie guy who's holding a guitar and want to give you a hug, but he's the divine judge who will consign you to hell or heaven, then you should develop a healthy fear of the Lord. And I really frankly don't care what color your fear takes. I'm happy if you fear him, whichever way you want, because it is the beginning of wisdom. And the Holy Spirit will not leave you there. He will lead you along the way. It is way better for all of us to fear the Lord when we start than to love him. Because if we're not fearing him, we're not loving him or the right way. So anyone who wants to sell you on the notion that Jesus is merciful all the time is selling you a lie. Jesus is merciful to those who repent. If you don't repent, you're going to fix the judgment. So it is really important for us to start and think, okay, there's this judgment. What am I supposed to do? Get to that point, you're on your way to heaven. But if you ignore that, You are in great danger, Spurgeon. So, relying on our own worth, we can neither consign ourselves to hell, no more send ourselves to heaven. And then God looks to the moral worth of our actions. So what do we have to do to prepare for judgment? We should know the moral worth of our actions. And therefore, we should develop this habit of daily examination of conscience. But you can't examine your conscience if you don't have the right rules by which you examine your conscience. I'm going to give you some at the end of this topic to help you do a proper examination of conscience. So one, examining your conscience at the end of the day is a good thing. Like, what did I do well? What did I do wrong? And Lord, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. That's it. Examination of conscience is like usually three to five minute deal to help you be conscious of the areas where you fail and the areas where you did well, so you can be grateful to God and you can ask for His mercy and be willing to repent. If you understand what I just said and you start to think about how am I structuring my life to do that, you're on your way to hell. All right. The other thing we need to be aware of is that there isn't just one judgment. We might think that, oh, well, there's only personal judgment. That's what God is going to judge us. In fact, God does not stop judging. It started at the very beginning without a need. It continues to the history of the Old and the New Testament. Those of you who came from my Bible study, you are aware of that. And there will be a personal judgment, and there's going to be a final judgment. That's how central judgment is. Now, here I've quote, I'm quoting the passage from Genesis, which is when Adam and Eve have sinned, 
I don't want you to focus on the fact they've sinned. I want you to focus on what God said. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all cattle. Now, in Hebrew, whenever scripture is written, most of the time, when you see a verb without a curse are you, notice that? The subject is not indicated. The subject of the cursing is not indicated. That you will find out that in other areas, whenever the Hebrew, the Israelites and the Hebrews and the Jews are talking about something that God is doing, they will drop the subject. Why? Because they're not supposed to say the name of the Lord. Therefore, they will not say, God will curse you. Because you're not supposed to say the name of the Lord that avoided entirely, and you get a sentence without a subject. Okay? Who's doing the cursing here? It is God. It's an active action on God's part to curse the serpent. And then, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Is that a blessing? No. I will greatly multiply. I will do this. The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. And then, and to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Which means now that nature is opposed to us. Nature becomes hostile. We get viruses. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens, right? We get viruses. We have to fight our way. We have to clean our hands. We eat a mushroom and we can die from it. So it's not supposed to be this way. Sin enters, brings disorder, and breaks harmony. And that's what we see here. I want to key, I want for you to key on, on, on the fourth point. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's the thing that these days are not explained to people when they go to Ash Monday or Ash Wednesday, depending on whether you're Eastern right or Western right. All you hear is, you are dust and the dust you shall return. And it sounds like this cute poetic thing. My friends, you are dust and the dust you shall return is like the tip of the iceberg. It's a reminder of this entire passage. It's a reminder that we are all under a curse. And why are we reminded at the entry of Lent that we are under a curse? Why? Because the church wants to flood us and bring depression in our life. No, because Lent is the beginning of the ascent of Mount Carmel. The top of the mountain is what? The cross. The resurrection. And the breaking of the curse. Who takes that curse upon himself and goes to Christ. But if we do not accept and understand that we are under this curse, how could we be saved? 
Christ is humble and he will not impose himself on anyone else. He hasn't come to save us despite ourselves. St. Augustine says, God who created you without yourself will not save you without yourself. So you need to participate in that salvation. And how do you do that? By recognizing that, yeah, we have sinned. It's not just Adam and Eve. We have sinned. And we justly deserve to be under this curse. And now that we recognize this, we turn to Christ who's on the cross, and we say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, the sinner. All right. So, judgment is always covenantal in nature. I'm not going to go in full detail on that. I have other topics that you can find on Corbono.com, especially the Catholic Foundation Library, go in full detail on the covenant. But fundamentally, a covenant is an agreement between two parties, the weak party and the strong party. The strong party sets the condition of the covenant, and the strong party then tells us, if you follow those conditions, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. Now, I'm going to give you one example, one example, because I think it's so fundamental and important and it's so misunderstood today. I'm talking about the sacrament of marriage. A lot of Catholics go and get married in the Catholic Church by people going to McDonald's. They walk in, they're all happy, there is the white dress, there is the groom, the groom. I don't understand what's bride and groom, not bride and groom, or groom and bride. I don't know, it's complicated. But anyway, the two of them show up and they go up to the altar and they say all these things and they go out and they forget about it. What do I mean by forget about it? They never ever invoke the power of the sacrament of marriage in their marriage when their marriage is in trouble. They don't understand that the sacrament of marriage signed by Christ in his blood is stronger than them. Stronger than their problems, stronger than their difficulties, stronger than the entire world. And they do not invoke the graces that they ought to receive through the sacrament of marriage. They don't live it covenantally. They have no clue. That's not their fault. It's just that we're not being properly educated these days about the truth of the faith. The sacrament of marriage is a covenant. The reason why a man and a woman walk into the church to get married is because they are standing before Christ on the cross and they're telling him, Lord, we are two sinners and we've come here to do this absolutely impossible thing. And any one of you who've been married for over 20 years, I think you know what I'm talking about. We are two sinners and we're going to live together and love each other until we die. And then these days, we're blessed to live to like 94. At least in the Middle Ages, you when you're 50. <laughs> we are going to do that all the way through. Yeah. It's insanity. And the rest of the world today recognizes this. Humanly possible, humanly, this is almost impossible. Very difficult. And then Christ says, okay, I'm going to sign your marriage with my blood. I'm going to impose my signature in my blood on that piece of paper. And I, the Lord, tell you this. If you're faithful to me and to my church, I will bless you. Not, 
and close to the computer. Okay, is that good? All right, all right. If you are faithful to me, I will bless you, regardless of your own personal sins. You understand that? He didn't say, if you're faithful to me and you're saints, I will bless you. No, no. If you're faithful to me, I will bless you. But if you're not, I will bless you. That's the covenant, my friends. And so if you're married, go home, fall on your knees, and ask God to send the blessings through that sacrament that he signed in his own blood and tell him that you want to be faithful to him and to his church. And I will tell you more about that a little later. That's how marriages grow, because then he will turn you into saints. And that's the purpose of marriage, to make you saints and make your children be blessed and prosper. All right. That's all I'm going to say about the covenant for now. But understand that judgment is always really covenant. Yes, yeah, hard to ignore. All right. Now, I told you about the objective side of the judgment, which is God knows the moral worth of our actions. God decrees what the end is going to be. And then God effectively says what that is going to be, what the, what the verdict is, and then he executes it. But he's also been judging the world throughout history, in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. There is then a subjective side to the judgment, which is usually the one that you most hear about. And it's the, that side where we effectively, in a sense, condemn ourselves by our own action. Well, that means that we make ourselves guilty. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that we can issue a actionable virtue, uh, verdict that can either send us to heaven or to hell. Because otherwise, all I have to do is stand right here. Like reminds me when my um, when the teachers would sometimes say to the student, grade yourselves. Right? If you do that to students, and I did it when I was teaching, it's the worst punishment you can give them. Because they grade themselves way harsher than you would have graded them. Right? Except for my wife. <laughs> She was in one class and then read herself and said, Wow, I'm doing great. She gave herself an A. Well, that worked in that class. Unfortunately, it doesn't work with subjective judgment. I can stand here all day long and say, I'm a saint. I'm Mother Teresa. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be saying exactly where I am. Not going to happen. So understand that subjective judgment is really when your conscience accuses you because of your sins or when you are effectively living a life of a sin. And there is peace in your heart. That's the subjective judgment. And the two come together. The two come together. Because when Jesus is going to, as the just judge, list our sins, the only thing we're going to be able to say is yes, Lord. Why? Because he is truth. And all he does is speaks the truth. And there is no shadow in that truth. And there is nowhere, no place for us to hide or make excuses or try to explain. Oh, but my wife did this, isn't it? No. It's going to be exactly the truth. And that is going to match our conscience. And our conscience is going to agree. And in that case, our conscience is going to accuse us. That's how it works. So, 
That explains also why Christ said, I have come not to judge, but to say what he means by that is that while he was here and while we are alive, he is the merciful Lord. This is the time of mercy. This is the time of salvation. This is the good news. This is the time we're given where we can appeal to his mercy and ask for forgiveness if we repent. So, saying Jesus is merciful, period, is misleading. Jesus is merciful to those who repent, and Jesus is merciful to those who do not repent because he's patient and waiting for them to repent. At the end of the day, if we don't repent, he's not going to impose his will on us, and we'll get his justice, not his mercy. All right. Now, how are we doing on time? 30 minutes. Okay. Perfect. Man, she read my mind. <laughs> it's moving the. Oh, I was on that. Here we go. So, immediately after death, the particular judgment takes place. In which, by divine sentence of judgment, the eternal fate of the deceased person is decided. And this rests on the dogma that departed souls go immediately after death into heaven, purgatory, or hell. There is no waiting period. And that's a dogma. And I'm giving you some references here. Um, the fathers are all agreed. There is a personal judgment. St. Augustine states it without any controversy. St. Ephraim does the same. I'm not going to go through the whole history of it. Just understand, there is a personal judgment. It happens right when you die, and then the decree happens right there. All right. Now, what is it? Okay. I'm giving you a lot of references on the the judgment in the Old Testament his name is known as the day of the Lord. And in the New Testament, he, the Lord himself, depicts graphically the event of the general judgment. What is the general judgment? It's not the personal judgment which happens after when you die. It happens at the end of the world. All right? And there are lots of references in scripture about a final judgment where everyone will stand before the Lord and will be judged. Well, then if that's the case, why do we have a personal judgment and a general judgment? Well, justice demands that everything be revealed, the good and the bad. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And the funny thing about us is that when we do something, when we do something that is evil, we try to hide it from others. But the funny thing is that our guardian angel and the Holy Trinity sees all. There's nothing we can hide from them. So we're like a robber or a thief that is trying to steal and play in plain daylight, but ignoring the police. Why is that? Well, because our conscience is not trained. We're not living our life thinking, what is what should I do that is in the best interest of God? 
to them. What should I do that is in the best interest of God? We typically live our life with what should I do that is in the best interest of moi? That's what the problem is. So whatever we do today will not be will not be hidden. All the sins will be revealed. With one exception, guys, with one exception, if you confess them. If you go to confession, not only will Jesus forgive your sin, you will forget about them. So, I don't know about you, but I go to confession every week. I'm not taking chances. So, that is the power of the sacrament of confession. And I cannot stress enough how important and powerful it is. Just like the sacrament of marriage, this is a gift that Jesus gave us for which he expresses his mercy. Not only does he forgive our sins, he also forgets about them. So, I would suggest you would consider that. And if you haven't gone to confession in a while, I really encourage you to do so. Confession is known as the tribunal of mercy. It is a tribunal of mercy where you receive the mercy and graces of God because you repented. To go to confession, you have to repent, which means that you are willing to change your lives. So for instance, if let's say you're addicted to broccoli, my perfect example, and it's really funny, all those script, my Bible study always talk about being addicted to broccoli. So those who came thought that I love broccoli. I can't stand the thing, but they would buy me bags of it. It was like the perfect, you know, God has a sense of humor. But anyway, if you're addicted to broccoli and you go to confession, you confess you're addicted to broccoli, that's good. But if the next week you go to Bronx and beat, beat three guys who are buying broccoli because you want it all, your confession is worthless. You need to try and change your ways. You may not succeed, that's okay. But you ought to try. That's repentance. It's measured in action. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right. Now, let's get to the meat of this whole thing. All right. Yeah, before that, I said this side here. Right. So, so God, judgment, and, and mercy. I've been alluding to this all through. Oh, yeah, I can't do it. That's true. All right. Is God merciful? Yes. His nature is love, therefore he is absolutely merciful. Is God merciful to all? Yes, because Christ came to save all. Is God merciful to all, all the time? No. Otherwise, hell would be empty. God's mercy is infinite, but God's merciful act towards each of us are finite. Why? Because we die. We're not going to live forever, so God's acts of mercy are finite. That's pure logic. God is merciful to the merciful. And if you're not repentant of your sins, you are in danger of hardening your heart, which will prevent you from being merciful. God is always merciful to those who repent. Always. As long as you're repentant, as long as you, you know, a broken and hum a humble and contrite heart Oh Lord, you will not spurn. What does it mean? A humble and contrite. What do you mean to be contrite? You're sorry for your sin. If you're sorry for your sins, God will forgive you today, tomorrow, and every day. 
Are the unrepentant consigned to hell if they die unrepentant? If they die unrepentant, then yes. That's a dogma. Sin against the Holy Spirit. But between now and then, there are two other levers to keep in mind. The treasury of the church, the communion of the saints. I'm going to talk to you about this. So, um, here we go. I need to increase the, yeah, here we go. I'm going to walk you through this. Now, I created this for the purposes of reflection. I don't want you to think this is exactly how it's going to happen. But this is a reflection that's going to help all of us think it through. We're going to start here, right here. And we're going to start with this question. Can you see, by the way? Anybody? All right. Are you a sinner? Anyone who's not a sinner, raise your hand. Right here. <laughs> so, if you're not a sinner, then you're dying. That's it. So let's go down that path. You're dying. You're dying. You're not dead. You're dying. Are you dying in perfect friendship with Christ? If yes, then you die and you face your personal judgment like everybody else. And then you are a saint and you go to heaven. Okay. So what does it take to go to heaven? What should you be to go to heaven? I'm not hearing you. Humble, humble. Yes. A saint. Only saints go to heaven. Not good people. Not one of those lives. Saint. You have to be a saint. That's the purpose of this life. Okay. Now, if you're not in perfect friendship with Christ, are you dying in a state of moral sin? No. Let's say you're not dying in a state of moral sin. We'll talk about moral sin a little later. But let's say you're not dying in a, moral, in a state of moral sin. Then are you dying in a state of venial sin? No. Perfect. You die. You face judgment. You go to heaven. You're a sin. Now, there's a difference between perfect friendship with Christ and dying in a state without venial sin. One has greater glory than the other. You're saved in heaven, but it's not the same glory. Right? But hey, we're talking here about, you know, you know we're quibbling, honestly. All right? <laughs> so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm explaining why there are two states here. All right, let's assume. So let's go back now. Are you dying in a state of moral sin? Let's go down the no path. The yes path, I mean. Yes, you're dying in a state of moral sin. Okay. That's what it gets sort of interesting. Are you repentant? Remember, you're not dead yet. You're in that twilight zone between life and death. Are you dying? Are you repentant? Yes. You repent. Right there and then you repent. Right? You're Hitler. You're Stalin. You're Lenin. You, you are you. Okay? Because I'm going to remind you that from God's perspective, my sins and Hitler's sins are not as big. The difference between them is not as big as I would like it to be. We make them be way bigger because we think of ourselves are way better than them. Truth is, we're a lot closer to them when seen from God's perspective. All right? 
So are you dying in a state of mortal sin? Are you repentant on the spot? How do we know that? It's in the scriptures. Where in the scriptures? The thief on the cross. What then? Jesus, Jesus, remember me. Today, you will be with me very nice. Talk about not going to jail. Fast going for that 200. Why didn't you go to purgatory for goodness sake? That's amazing. He's the first canonized saint by the Lord. And he himself said, What is going, what is happening to us? We deserve this. He admitted that we deserve the punishment. So he was a nice little cute guy. But he repented right there and then. And God's mercy on him. But you have to repent. Okay. Are you repentant? So by the mercy of God, the intercession of his mother and the saints, God could, could forgive your sin. Could. God is under no obligation to extend his mercy during that time. Because the way he extended his mercy to us is through the sacraments of the church. He would expect us to make use of them. If we don't, we should, we're playing now Russian roulette if we're waiting for that moment. All right? But he can still do it. That's why we don't judge anyone. We don't say where they end. We don't know. All right. Let's say you're not even repentant. Do you accept the intercession of his mother or of the saints? Like, is there a saint that you love? Even you're not repentant, but you love that saint. That saint can intercede for you. There's a difference between praying and interceding. Praying is begging, begging. We have no power. Interceding is speaking with power. Like our lady. Do whatever he tells you. Bam, it's done. That is intercession. That's what the saints gain by their life, by their heroic virtues. They gain power of intercession, which is why we can pray to them. Right? So maybe you love one of those saints and then they decide, you know what, Jesus, this hardened sinner was cute and cuddly when he was a baby. I want him in heaven. And Jesus, out of his love for the saints, would say, I'll make it happen. Which is why one of my favorite verses, and probably one of the verses that are least contemplated in the creed is, we believe in the communion of the saints. That's what it means. Okay? All right. Say you don't. You don't even accept their intercession. Is there someone in your family line who's in heaven and who has power intercession? Then they can ask for Jesus and he will do it for them. Why is this the covenant that runs the family? As parents, you can bless your kids, you can curse them. You have that power. A grandma or a great grandma or someone in your lineage who happen to be watching over and they see you and they say, Oh, wow, I want that in heaven. I want him, her in heaven. I'm just showing you the extent of Jesus' mercy. We can't count on it because he doesn't have to do any of this. He's not under obligation to do any of this. The sacraments, he is. 
He put himself under those, this obligation to always fulfill the power of his hands. This Russian roulette. But if you're still refusing that, then you die and you face judgment and you go to hell. All right, let's follow the track where, by the mercy of God, you're saved. And there is a few of those. We started here, are you dying in a state of moral sin? And we said, no. Are you dying in a state of venial sin? We said, yes. Then, did you fast, give alms, serve the poor, perform acts of mercy, pray the rosary, avail yourself of indulgences, strove to be a saint? These things... Well, then, when you die, depending on God's judgment, either you're going to go straight to heaven because of what you've done, right? The scripture tells us that almsgiving can forgive many sins. So what you have done can forgive many sins, right? And you can go straight to heaven. Indulgences is taking from the treasury of mercy of the church and paying off the temporal punishment due to sin so that we can avoid purgatory. They're there, they're available to all of us. You can look them up. All right, or for whatever reason, that doesn't happen. And then all these paths are gonna lead you to purgatory. Now, when you're in purgatory, it's a great news. It's a one way. You're, you can't go to hell, that's it, it's over. You're going to hell. You're gonna go to hell, but you're going to spend time in purgatory to be purified and to essentially pay for the temporal punishment you sin. What does that mean? It means you have a kid who breaks your window with a baseball. He comes to your door with his mom and he says he's sorry. You forgive the kid, but he still has to pay for that window. That's the temporal punishment you sin. When you go to confession, you get a penance, and usually it's a really easy one. Like sometimes I can argue with the priest. Really? Is that it? Because, you know, I'm worried about my time. That's not enough of a punishment. I'm going to get a bigger one after. But that punishment, if you say, that's it. It's amazing. It's like, say three amends. Wow. That blows my mind away. If I was, I was the priest, I would say to that, say the 20, 20 decades of the rule for you. Three amends, really? Wow. Anyway. If you don't do that, guess what? There's temporal punishment people sin because we've injured God's majesty and we have to pay for it. That's what we do for people. And we'll talk about purgatory extensively in the third talk. And I hope by then you will understand that you want to do everything you can to avoid it. All right. Now, if you're in purgatory, you need earthlings to offer prayers, sufferings, and masses for you. So if you have people who died in your family, I hope you're not saying they are in a better place. Because if you do that, that's cruel. If they're in purgatory, they can't pray for themselves to get out of it. They're in purgatory due to the pure mercy of God. They have no claim or, or call to be able to get out of purgatory now. They depend on us. So you just don't offer a mass for the dead when they die 40 days later. You offer it continuously. You offer your sufferings. You sacrifice for them. They need it more than the people living here. 
because our suffering is much greater. So that is absolutely key. We are one family, people on earth in purgatory and in heaven, and the people in purgatory depend on our prayers. They have nothing else. Okay, so that's the cycle when you're about to die. But there is now a more important one, which is right here. Are you a sinner? It means you're alive. And if you're a sinner, then there's these two boxes, the red and the blue, and many of us are in both. We are complicated human beings. We're not simple. I'm going to give you some of those. I'm going to run down through these to help you think about your own actions. And then on the next slide, I'll give you some other things to think about in terms of examination of conscience. Let's go through the red box. Did you commit any of those grave sins? Let's talk a little bit about grave sin. You will see in the catechism, and when you hear the church talk, the church will speak of sins which are a grave matter. The church will never say this is a moral sin. This is a grave matter. The grave matter objective becomes moral sin subjective when I know it's a sin. I freely choose to commit it, and I commit it. Those three together makes the great matter a moral sin. But let's take again the poor guy, Bob, who's addicted to broccoli. He sees broccoli starts growing, and he just runs to it. His will is impaired. He is addicted. His will is not free to make that decision. Therefore, in many instances, people who are addicted to broccoli, substitute anything else you wish for broccoli, are typically not committing a moral sin because their will is not free to make that decision. You understand? Okay. So moral sin, it's a great matter. You choose to do it. You know it's a great matter. You, I didn't say, by the way, I did not say you're convinced it's a great matter. It's enough for you to know that the church says it's a great matter. If you know that, you choose to do it, you ignore the teaching of the church, and you do it, it becomes a moral sin. Here are some examples. Did you use the name of the Lord in vain? You say the name of the Lord in vain. As soon as you do that, you're holding in your hand one way to get to heaven. It's that simple. So don't do it. Okay, I might go a little over. Then I have to be patient with you. Miss Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. In the Maronite Church, we have numerous Holy Days of Obligation. You miss those. It's a moral sin. You see, the funny thing about moral sin is that they don't think of the moral sin. Well, I mean, some do, yeah, if you kill somebody or you, I don't know, do these big things. And people think of these big things. They think that's it. No, 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 no. Those are even more important because they, they, these, when you miss Mass on a Holy Day obligation on Sunday, you are insulting God directly. When you kill someone, you are 
harming a human being. Guess which one is worse? Refuse to forgive. Now, refuse to forgive does not mean your emotions are happy. It simply means in your head you go, Lord, I want the best for you. Whatever it is, let that happen. Even if inside of you you're bullying, doing that, you're forgiving. Doesn't mean you're going to be hugging them and being in their face. And No, it just means you wish the best for them. You don't want any harm to happen to them. You forgive them. You're, you forgive them. That's all. It's an act of the of reason, not an act of the heart. Reason. You do that, you, you, you forgive them. And don't worry about your emotions. All right. You got drunk? That's a moral sin. Why? Because when you get drunk, you lose control of your reason, which is the one most important faculty that makes us in the image of God. So you are erasing the image of the divinity from you. You are negating the word, the work that God did in your life and the gift he gave you. Again, it is a great matter because you are effectively going against God's glory. So, a word to the wise. You do drugs, sex outside the marital act. Do you eat too much? Now, it's one thing if you go to visit some good Lebanese family and they eat four tons of food, or Kadir, for that matter, they don't know the Middle East, and they eat four tons of food on your plate, and you're a polite person and you're trying to basically honor them. Here, you're eating, but you're not happy. You're doing it as an act of mercy. That doesn't matter. We're talking about eating for the pleasure of it, and you're eating too much. That contraception. What is why is contraception the most thing? Because in the Greek we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. When we contracept, we're telling the Holy Spirit. Now wait a minute. You're not the boss. I'm the boss. It's an act of idolatry. So if it happens that you probably accepted in the past and that you didn't know what you were doing, God is not asking you to reverse whatever you did, but he's asking you to repent. And that means you would say to him, if I could today, if I knew what I know today, back then, I wouldn't have done it. I'm really sorry. That's what he wants to hear. But if you harden your heart and you go, well, I don't want the church in my bed. Okay, you're not going to have the church in your bed. Guess what you're going to have in your bed? 700,000 demons are going to come flocking to your bed because you took the church out. In the spiritual realm, there is no empty moment. Committed perjury, calumny, or libel, meaning especially uh, you. Look them up. I don't have time to go through them right now. Anyway, <laughs> neglected your parents, suspected them, you've you stole, you cheat on your spouse. Those are examples to help you start to think about your own actions. That's on the 
on the on the right side. Uh, two more minutes. No, no, two more minutes. Thank you. Now, good deeds. Did you feed the hungry? Close the naked. Sorry, I combined two. Um, visited prisoners, care for the sick. Did you witness to your faith before persecution? Did you witness to Christ by your conduct? So, I hope that when you go to a restaurant and you sit down to eat, you're blessing yourself. Because those who are ashamed of me before men, I will shall be ashamed of them before my father. Did you show mercy? Did you forgive? Did you offer sacrifice in secret? Did you live the Beatitudes? Did you pray every day? Did you go to daily mass? Did you go to confession frequently? Did you work on your virtues? And then most importantly, when you don't do those things, did you promptly forget about them? In Lebanon, we had a saying in Lebanese, which is going to sound strange in English, but it would say this, do good and throw it in the sea. The idea being that you do something good, forget about it. So here we have an occasion to do even more good than in Lebanon because we have oceans. <laughs> so when you do something good, forget about it right away. Otherwise, it's going to turn against you and start nurturing your pride. Right? Now, why am I, why did I bring all this? Here's the deal. You know this twilight zone I told you about earlier, where I'm going through, right? Are you, are you going to repent? Are you going to accept the intercession? Guess what nourishes it? The habits that you form right now. The habits that you and I are forming right now are going to be nourishing the way we respond to God's mercy in that twilight zone should extend it to us. The two are connected. And the demons know that, and they want to distract us from what is essential. So, judgment. Take it seriously. It's going to happen to all of us. Prepare for it daily. We don't know where we are going Take a few virtues. So, I, I will somehow make this presentation available to you, because obviously I've gone longer than I should, but uh, what? How about you let me do this? Okay, thank you. No, this is here. Just let, let, let go. Okay, I go. No. No. Sorry. Okay, here we go. I apologize. This is not my computer. It's something created by Apple to torture us. So that's all I have to say. Not this one in particular, but pick like one virtue 
four, three. And they're opposite vices. I work on those. Make it your goal to improve a little bit in those. In this way, you'll be showing God that you're serious about your faith, you're serious about Him, and you really want to go to heaven. At the end of the day, we can do very little. But the little we can do is showing Him that we love Him. Like St. Teresa of would say, all our works would be comparable to a little child who sees his parents starting a fire. The fire is blazing, and the little kid goes and grabs a few straws and then runs over and he wants to feed the fire. The parents are happy to see what the kid has done and they take those straws and add it to the big fire. That's how we are. That's all we can do. But in this way, we demonstrate our love to God and that's all he cares about. That we love him more than love ourselves. Thank you. Um, we will have a brief Q&A session. For those of you who need to leave, we completely understand, so feel free to exit um, and go on with your evening. But please, I encourage you to stay and listen in on the questions. Sometimes they provide a lot of good insights. Uh, before we jump into our Q&A session, I need to give a highlight to another huge supporter of our MYA group, Joe in the back. He is on our national MYA board, and it's his birthday. on his way out. They brought um, cake for him, so that can be cut into kind of that to get into the questions, probably. Um, but with that, I will give the floor back to my dad. If you have any follow-up questions, Tessa will be taking some on Zoom if we have any there. So, I'll leave it to you guys. Yeah, I have a recommendation uh, to increase the length of your talks to an hour and a half. <laughs> 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 so you can actually cover the material. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. We'll consider it uh, for the boss over there. Yes. Yes. You were talking about the how sins are forgiven and forgotten, but where does concupiscence come in? And you know the fact that if you broke the window, that there's still you have to make up for the broken glass. Is this made up for sacrifices, second purgatory, or is it really just forgotten? So great question. So, you know, the general judgment is about the revelation of sins. I don't think in the general judgment, well, I'm, I need to be careful. I'm not certain that during the general judgment, uh, yeah, the thing where you see me hesitating is because I'm not even sure that when a general judgment occurs, purgatory will still exist. Right? I think it's going to be straight heaven or hell. But I'm, I want to be careful because there is no definitive answer on this one, right? I mean, it was interesting. There were some studies, I mean, some reflections done where people were asking, okay, so let's say a woman is pregnant when a general judgment happens. Baby's not born, not even baptized. What happens? There's a lot of questions for which we really don't have the answer. Uh, and in particular on this one, I don't know what to tell you at this point for the general judgment. However, what I can say is that for most of us, in principle, 
the personal judgment is going to happen. And that's the one we need to worry about. For the personal judgment, two things will happen. One, we want forgiveness of sins, because that's what will get us into heaven. Purgatory is that the temporal punishment due to sin. Those can be taken away in um, one of two ways, three ways, one of three ways. First and best is we go to confession and we have perfect contrition. Perfect contrition means we're perfectly sorry for our sins because they hurt God. We're not even worried about ourselves. We're only sad because they hurt God. That perfect act of love takes away everything. So we need to pray for perfect contrition. We cannot, we cannot come up with it. It's a grace that we see from God to ask for. Okay? That's the best way. The second, give me a second. The second is through indulgences. Now, indulgences are also tied to perfect contrition, but some of them are not. Like, for instance, and this is mind-blowing, the divine mercy, the promise of Jesus seems to suggest that he's willing to forgive all our sins and take away temporal punishment even without perfect condition. This is how much he's extending his mercy. That's the second way. And the third way is purgatory. Have I answered your question? Okay. Uh, suffering and redemption leads only to perfect contrition. Suffering is, we, we suffer so that we can love God. At the end of the day, that's what we suffer. Suffering on its own means nothing, does nothing. But when we, yes, what I'm saying, when we suffer for the love of God, then our sufferings are done. Yeah. Um, John on Zoom asked, why can't the church triumphant help those in purgatory? Why can't the church triumph and help those in purgatory? Because what matters is the only thing that can help the, the, the souls in purgatory are uh, masses said on their behalf and the sufferings that we offer for them. Essentially, we are suffering on their behalf. And obviously, the church triumphant, right, can't do any of this. Yes. So, I know for the Catholic, we have the last rites, right? Yes. And if you're not able, or maybe you died in an accident, or before you died, so this period, is there a time that you could repent, or how does this work exactly? Let's suppose you have a few minutes and you're still not dead yet. So, can you ask for God to forgive you then? And then that's your way to. Okay. Absolutely. Unless so, you don't have a chance at all. Correct. See, hold on. So, um, <laughs> you asked a great question. Let's talk about last rites. First of all, the sacrament of last rites is a wonderful sacrament. If you receive it worthily, right? It's the one we take it to heaven, guys. This thing is amazing. But that means you have perfect nutrition, which means you need to be prepared for that, right? That's what it does. The second thing is that what do we pray for as Catholics? We pray so we can avoid what? Sudden death. That's something you have to pray for. You pray so you can avoid sudden death. Now, some people obviously are sad when they hear that they have cancer. You know what? That's mercy. You know you're going to die, you have to prevent it. Sudden death is the worst. 
Okay. The third, are you abandoning yourself to the will of God? Lord, do with me what you will. If that's the case, don't worry about it. All right. Yes. Another question online? Yeah, yeah. Hold on one second. I'm going to answer it if you don't mind. Yes. No. No. Okay. Please go ahead. We're in a practical way because all our acts are soul purgatory. So we live the official way of, you know, with the priest announcing the name or the official but What's the way we can do it personally? This is exactly the way you have to do it. You go to the priest and you say, I want you to offer this mass on behalf of so and so. And then you pay whatever stipend is required from from you, and that mass is offered for that soul. No other way? No. That's how you offer the mass. And you can offer your own sacrifices, right? You can pray for them consistently, diligently, right? You can do that. So you can do that. But to offer a mass is done this way. That's how the church asks us to do it. Have I answered your question? Or is that you're good? Okay. Yes. Can you offer a mass for someone who is not Catholic? Uh, yes, absolutely. You can offer mass for anyone, uh, whether the graces of the mass will reach that person or not is not as certain, if you will, as in the case of a Catholic. But you absolutely can offer for anyone because Christ died for all. Yeah. Great question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, can't you say prayers though for people who don't know in purgatory, right? I know there's prayers, so that if somebody was forgotten by their family, you can still pray. Wonderful question. In fact, uh, up in uh, Petersham, the Marinette monks of the Adoration, or Marinette order of monks in Petersham, which is mostly Protestant town, right across from the monastery is whenever we go there, Father Michael will take us to the cemetery. We know none of these people. But we will say the rosary prayer. Absolutely. Absolutely. The mercy of Christ extends to all. And so we are able to pray for all. That's that's wonderful. Absolutely. Yes. Um, if you no, take it away from them. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious because if you give it to them. They do not believe in the scapula and they disrespect it. Their situation will be worse than if they never had it in the first place. Why? Because now they are committing one of the worst possible sins you can commit in the eyes of our Lord, disrespecting his mom. Okay, Jesus was a Jewish boy. You don't mess with the mom. So, no, take it away from if they live the promises, yes, absolutely. Yeah, so this is there are so many, there's so many treasures. Yes, you have to be enthroned in the scapular, also. Yeah, I mean, there's a process you go to a priest and then they will say a prayer to enthrone you in the scapular. They need to understand what that means, right? Okay, there are so many treasures that the church offers us as God's mercy for us. We just have to avail ourselves of it. Take one, choose one, two, right? There is one, for instance, there's one um, novena. It's novena of Saint, uh, it's in Bridget? Mm -hmm. Yes, Bridget Is it the three year one I'm thinking about? It's a one year. It's a one year, yeah. Saint Bridget is one year. There's another novena I've shared with you. It's three years. It's a three year novena. Every day you say, Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be, twice. 
in honor as you meditate on the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Do that for three years consecutively, nonstop, and the promises you go straight to heaven. Okay? Took me 10 years to finish. <laughs> We restart again. I think Martha, I Absolutely. We forget. We start again. But then, like uh, like uh, John Sapp told me, what that really means, this is a very practical man, he said, that, that really means you're going to say it every day. And he's right. You should say it every day. So there are so many, so many devotions, so many treasures in the church that you can obey yourself of, which is why when we start to find Christ, Literally, we have no excuse. Yes? Okay, so going back to the offering of the Mass, what I have read is if you repent for the confession and then go before the Eucharist, you can actually offer it during, you can offer the Mass as an indulgence to that. You can basically, yeah, yeah, to the deceased. That's what I've read. So okay, that's no, wonderful. I, I wasn't aware of that. No, no, no. Um, so it's basically once you repent, you're free of the sins. You can take that gain and indulgence to that deceased person. Okay. What's really interesting is that when they say when you repent, is it contrition or is it contrition? No, no. Okay. There are two types of repentance. So we can both. No, no. Maybe I would. So when you go to confession, you can be sorry, right, for your sins because you're afraid for your time. You don't want to go to hell. That's a great, healthy fear. It's called attrition. Okay. It's imperfect. Why? Because you think about yourself. But it's great. All right. Take that any time. All right. I don't, I don't, I'm not putting it down. The perfect sorrow is contrition. And it's when you're sorry, you forget about yourself, and you're sorry because you offended them. And so would, that's where to me it kind of gets complicated. Is it when you have attrition or contrition that becomes an indulgence? That's why I like to keep it simple for those things, because if you go to the priest, Pay your stipend, you're offering the mass, it's objective, it's outside your hand. It doesn't matter what's going inside of you, the mass is being on. Yes. Yeah. Um, for those outside the Christian faith, I'm not talking about those who I'm talking about people who have heard of Christianity but just chose not to believe it. What is the official Catholic teaching on um they've heard about it, they just don't believe it, they were baptized and they're yeah. Um so there is a dogma that says that if somebody's unbaptized, they cannot enter that. Which is why the church has never, and is still kind of struggling through, but so far has never said that aborted babies aren't baptized. They're not baptized. You cannot, the problem is that if you reject the necessity of baptism, you're rejecting the death of Christ on the cross. You cannot do that. We cannot do that. So therefore, we are not in a position to say that anyone who is not baptized will make it happen. Having said that, we still trust in God's mercy because we operate under the umbrella of the sacraments. But God is not bound by the sacraments. God can do whatever God wants to do. At the same time, God is rational and reasonable. And if he died, establish those sacraments is not going to necessarily spur them because then he himself is diminishing the worth of the sacraments. So yes, baptism is absolutely necessary to enter heaven and there are three types of baptism as you know. Baptism by water, 
the third wave, baptism by blood, which is mean when you die for the faith, and baptism by desire, which is mean I would like to be baptized, but you die before you're baptized. Okay. So by the way, mothers who have had um, who have had um, miscarriages, okay, some of them try to baptize the baby. You don't need to do that. You're covered. Right? Baptism by desire covers you completely. Because God knows your intention in your heart, and that baby will be in heaven as if the baby was baptized. Right? But when a baby is aborted, an abortion isn't just a cruel physical act, it's much worse. It's a curse that the mother imposes on the child. And God respects our wishes, which is why it's really difficult to figure out what happens to those aborted babies. It's not an easy thing. And it's not just to say, oh, but you know, God loves babies even in heaven. Yeah, God loves babies a lot, more than we will ever love them. But he, but he loves his son even more. All right. So what about the Muslim people, the Hindus, all of that, they're not baptized? In principle, they're not baptized, they don't go to heaven. Now, you have to understand why. Going to heaven is not based on merit. You understand? It's not like, and I'm going to say something else, by the way, that, that, that's going to color my answer a little bit, okay? It's not based on, on let, me, let me show it to you this way. Say you have a dog, his name is Fido, and that dog is wonderful. You get home, Fido brings you your slippers, take your shoes, put them in place, he vacuums, and then he brings you the newspaper, brings you your dinner, does the dishes, wonderful dog. Best dog ever. Is that dog going to happen? Why? Why is that Fido going to happen? He doesn't have a human nature, yeah? Okay. So notice it's not based on merit. See that? What is heaven based on? Family. You need to be part of the family of God. You have to be incorporated into his family, which is why you have to be careful. Let's say good people go to heaven. It's family. How do we become members of the family of God? Baptism. Okay. Let me call it that for you. In the scriptures, you know this gospel that you hear at church, especially in Maryland church, I think we hear it twice or three times a year. When Christ says, blessed are you um, for I was hungry and you fed me, right? And then depart from me, oh, curse, because I was hungry, and, right? Who is he talking to when he says those things? Who is the audience of these blessings and curses? Is it the Catholics? No. It is the nations, the people who are outside of the faith. What is he implying by that? He's implying that if you are not baptized, but you are effectively acting as if you are baptized, there's still a way for you to have it. Okay? Which is why we say baptism by design. In other words, somebody could be acting exactly like objectively they are Christian. Formally, they're not. They haven't recognized it. But when they stand in front of Christ, they go, oh, it was you who I was loving all, all along. Yeah, I really want to be part of you. He can do that. He can send that, that mercy to them. Yeah, if I can do that, I can do that right now. Yeah, it will make it come out. 
Make sense? Okay, but that depends on his mercy, not ours. Which is why the church must continue to evangelize. Yes. Yes. You know about people who are, let's say, sick, they have Alzheimer's, they couldn't confess because they lost their mind. Yeah, so what, that's a hard even, one. Even with the last flight, so would they, would they have a chance to... That's a hard one. Yeah. So, again, you see, this is... So the question is, what happens to someone who has Alzheimer's? So Alzheimer's basically affects your reading. You are no longer able to make decisions. That's a hard one. Which is why we have to repent now. Now. And when someone has Alzheimer's, you administer rest, last rites, you leave it to God's mercy. Because the person is unable to. Normally, part of the last rites is confession. They can't confess. So you do the best you can and you pray. But it's in God's hands. We, we, yeah, we, we, we cannot do much about it. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, no, no, I'm sorry. I think she, she has no, a problem. One last question. Yes. Well, you know if someone is contaminated through their body or another because you said we always have to pray for them right and god decides great so great how, question how, how would you know we don't so we, we don't. pray for everybody the family so you pray because if your prayer if the person is in heaven god will take your prayer and give it to someone else it will never go to us so you don't have to worry about it yeah when our deceased are gone we keep praying for them precisely because we don't know and Oftentimes, God will not reveal to us. Why does he not want to reveal to us the state of our loved ones? Two things. To increase our reliance on him and to increase our humility. Okay? Yes. So a lot of Catholics aren't taught like you're teaching tonight. And so they're not formed correctly. You have bishops and priests, right, that don't talk about heaven and hell and in fact, a lot of them will say maybe there's not a hell, and in fact, everybody can go to heaven. When a Catholic dies and they haven't done things properly, is God more merciful if they haven't been formed correctly? Great question. Here's the thing: one of the one of the commandments of the church is that we must form ourselves. At the end of the day, it's on every one of us to be formed. Now, it depends on circumstances. In people where there is war and famine and the situation is horrendous and you're trying to make ends meet, you don't have time to sit and stop. I get that. But you always have time to say the rosary. And when you say the rosary, St. Louis de Montfort teaches that Our Lady embarks on people who say the rosary with the devotion and open heart that one has to have when they say the rosary a mystical theology that teaches them about the love, the love of her son. At the end of the day, what you want to learn is to love Jesus. And you love you, you come to love him by knowing him. Here's the problem for us, lady. I want you to imagine this, the following scenario. I want to become a Marine. But I'm only willing to go to Camp Pendleton where the Marines train once a week, and I'll spend one hour. And in half of that hour, I'm distracted. I'm going to become a Marine. You see how you're laughing at what I just said? Well, that's how the angels are laughing at us. Maybe they're not laughing, but they should. When we say, oh, well, you know, I just go to Mass once a week, you know, 
once a week, and I'm out of heaven. So, yes, we have an issue in terms of uh, a crisis of the faith, if you will, among the clergy. That's evident. But what can we do about it? There's plenty of resources. Are we willing to commit some time to read some good books, to increase a little bit our time of prayer, to create a discipline of prayer? Like if you pray 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night, can you learn about the virtues? Can you form your own Bible study? Is there something you can do? That's what God is waiting to see. What are we going to do? And that's all we can do. Unfortunately, you're right. The formation is lacking in many ways, but the resources are not. So it's on us to basically train ourselves and learn to do what God expects us. What God expects from us. Yes. Uh, for the cases of people that have other faiths and the cases of um, people that have abortions, how much of and all these other things where there's ignorance or at, at some point where they completely convince themselves that there is nothing wrong and there's no guilt that's, that, that's, that comes out of it. How much of a role does forgive them uh, or they know not what they do play? Okay. So, forgive them for they know not what they do apply as Christ himself showed us for the things that we do during this life. He's willing to forgive us because most of the time we don't know what we're doing, as long as we come and ask for forgiveness. All right? I don't think it applies to when we stand before his personal judgment. Now, the one thing you said, which is really important, is you said, well, they are doing those things, but they don't know that it's wrong. The problem is there is this thing called the natural law. The natural law is not the law of nature. The natural law is called natural because it's the law written in our conscience. The Ten Commandments that God wrote in everyone's conscience. There is not a person on this planet that does not know that abortion is wrong, or that stealing is wrong, or killing an innocent is wrong. Is wrong. Our conscience, that's where the person, personal judgment comes and convicts us. However, we can harden our hearts. That's the dangerous thing. When we say, I, I'm convinced that what I'm doing is not wrong, I just harden my heart. Like fair. And therefore, I am not going to be open to God's mercy. That's a very dangerous situation to be in. So whether you're actually someone of a different faith or Catholic, doesn't matter. We're on the same boat from that angle. If we're going to harden our hearts, we're in a very dangerous position. So we always need to pray for, for, the, for the mercy of God to reach our heart, to help us not to harden our hearts, to open our hearts to His will so we can do the right thing. The forgive us for they do not what they do implies that we want to be forgiven. He's basically telling God not to judge, but if we refuse forgiveness, we will be judged. Because God is not going to impose his forgiveness on us. We have to accept it. But if I am hardening my heart, how can he forgive me? Back to the thing that I told you about, that may be intercession. Okay, in order for me to be forgiven, I have to have the grace to accept the forgiveness. And that means I have to have the grace to say, yes, Lord, I was wrong. I have to admit my fault so that forgiveness could happen. If I don't admit my fault, if I'm saying, nope, I was right. I'm not asking for forgiveness. 
I'm asking for justification. And that's why it's a dangerous position to be in. Does limbo still exist? So limbo is this idea. This is the, the best we know right now to deal with the, the fate of babies who died and are unbaptized. In the, you see, most fathers would say that original sin does not consign us to heaven. A few did. St. Augustine, for instance, did. And so he consigned all babies who are not baptized to heaven. Other fathers differ. And the common position in the church today is that of St. Thomas Aquinas. And that is personal sins is what commits us to, to heaven, not original sin. Um, however, baptism is required for heaven. So what happens when you have a child that is born, unbaptized, and dies? The only thing we think of is the limbo for those babies. And what St. Thomas thinks is that these children at the end of time, including therefore the children who died because of abortion, will rise up and will live in perfect natural beatitudes. Meaning they will live in a beatitude similar to what Adam and Eve had on earth, but they will never be able to see the beatitude vision. That's the best we have so far. I know four years ago, Pope Francis established a commission to study limbo again, and so I haven't heard anything. And I don't know if they can get around this. Yes? What is the best way to pray for the saints? You know how sometimes we pray Mother Mary and saints and kind of trip to treat them as God. You know, we pray, we ask for them as, as the same way we pray there. When we ask for God, especially somebody who always looks like my mom and family, they have that habit. How, when it comes to saints, maybe we just ask them to pray for us to intercede, or are we allowed to ask for actually more than that? No, exactly what you said. We pray for Our Lady and the saints so that they may intercede before the throne of Jesus for us. But you know what I'm talking about. I, I know, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. However, you know, what happens is that people who develop familiarity with the saints can be beautiful things. Like I had a, um, there's a story that I can tell you, it's a real story, about a woman who wanted to be married. She was looking for her husband, and she was praying to St. Anthony Father about her husband. And prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and prayed, and her husband was forthcoming. So one day she's had it with him. So she started yelling at him. Because he's not funny. She's Italian, you forgive it, right? Because she's not getting a husband. And then she was so frustrated that she threw the statue of St. Anthony out of the window. That's how frustrated she was. Five minutes later, there was a knock on the door. And this man was rubbing his head, wanting to know why the statue of St. Anthony didn't on the head. Six months later, they were there. So the saints are very forgiving with our humanity. It's best to have a like I wouldn't perturb your mother with this. She has a relationship with our lady, leave it be. Let our lady deal with it. It's great. That's way better than you not having a relationship. That's what I would say. But yes, we only ask them to intercede for them twice because that's all they can do. The reason I said that because I, I was I was doing that similarly, same thing with Mother Mary, but then they said it was wrong. 
that kind of messed up with my mind. Well, you're doing what with Saint Bernard? You know, I had a good, a much stronger relationship until someone told me that you know that it's wrong to you, that you must ask one of the managers to pray for you. Okay, take a shovel, dig a hole, and put that person in it. No, <laughs> go back to the stronger relationship with our lady, right? She's your mom, right? What are you talking about? No, get that. Okay, no, devotion to our lady is especially important because she's our mother. Christ made her our mother. That is her mission. So, no, you have the right relationship when you get really close to her. That's what she wants. All right? Yeah. We'll take like one or two more questions and then we're going to close the question. Very good. Yes. Do you believe that the fire of hell is like real fire or like symbolic? I'm saying, do you believe the fire of hell is like actual fire or like symbolic? That means like there's pain and tears. There is, it's an actual fire, but not a physical fire. We'll, we'll talk more in detail about that when we get to hell. Thanks, you. Yeah. <laughs> One last question. Okay. I just do receive the notification and uh, we will have a Bible study again next week. Hi, <laughs> uh, next week at 7 30 again here at the hall again the topic as we're progressing as i mentioned will be on health um thank you for your patience bearing with us as we figure out our little zoom technological issues here and thank you all again for coming uh feedback is more than welcome so you can come over to use any comments for next week and we will see you guys then have a great night everybody. And water. Okay.